Advances in network speed and emerging immersive media platforms are transforming our communications experiences and leading to a future where everything is media. I'm Mark Frauenfelder from Institute for the Future. We're an independent, nonprofit research group with more than 48 years of forecasting experience. In this episode of the Institute for the Future podcast, I spoke to IFTF Research Director Bradley Kreit about IFTF's research into the technologies and societal forces that will transform when, where, how, and why we communicate in a world of ambient media. Hi, Brad. Your research project for 2016 was titled, When Everything is Media. What does that mean? Yeah, so our, our work in 2016 had this this framing called When Everything is Media, the Future of Ambient Communications. And the big sort of underlying idea of this is that we're rapidly headed toward a future where kind of anything that you can imagine doing, seeing, interacting with has the potential to be digitally mediated in one way or another. It has the potential to be captured, stored, and affected by um, digital communication streams. And so in our work, what we're really trying to understand you know, were a few key questions. So one was just what are, the, what are the big underlying technological forces that are shaping this space? What are, the, what are the technological forces and thresholds that we need to be paying attention to? Um, and then the second question that we were really interested in is how will people relate to and understand these technologies? So um, it, it, in many ways... Um, our thinking here is shaped by, um, by, by the sense that as, even as our technologies change very rapidly, the ways we use them and why we use them tend to be much more familiar. They tend to, be, they tend to change much more slowly. Um, so like a, for me, a really good example is if you think about something like the Super Bowl. Um, you know, in, in, in previous eras, you would just watch the Super Bowl on, on the television uh, now, you know, most people, if you're watching, particularly if you're watching at home, you're on Twitter or you're doing something on social media. So there's sort of two layers of mediation. And what we're arguing is that that sort of, that an event like that will continually, continually be mediated by new technologies. And what are the technologies that are going to enable this kind of future? Yeah. So at, at the most sort of basic level, one of the real striking findings for us in this work was that a lot of a lot of what's getting hyped right now, so if you think about um, you know, voice-based interfaces or conversational interfaces like the Amazon Echo or some of the new experiments with virtual reality that you know, are emerging from places like Oculus uh, or the HoloLens, Microsoft's augmented reality platform, what's really interesting is, is they're all being hyped now as sort of the next big thing in computing or the, the next big interface or the next big communications platform. And what was really striking to us throughout this work is that in many ways they're being hyped um, but because they're really good. It's, it's not, you know, of course it's a sales job, but it's not really a sales job in the sense that there's just a ton of potential that's you know, rapidly emerging. Um, and so f- for us, it's, the, the task was to really take a step back and say, um, we need to understand a world where a lot of different communications platforms are all maturing at once, and we sort of need to understand them. Uh, in different terms and, and really sort of rethink the entire experience. So in our work, we identified five, what we called five big capacities of ambient communications. Could you briefly walk us through them? 
Yeah, sure, of course. So um, the first was what we called embedded. So embedded is, you know, kind of the most familiar, I think, communications technology story. It's, um, you know, continued improvements in processor speed and, and, and that kind of thing. It's the rise of the Internet of Things. It's, it's really the idea that and, and the understanding that communications technologies are getting embedded everywhere. And so, um, you know, right now, you know, I'm in a conference room. There's my computer. There's a phone. I, mean, I have my phone in my pocket. I have a Fitbit. So there are three or four communications devices here. But that what we would expect to see is just an ongoing steady increase of the, of the kinds of communications devices that you would have in any given space. So first is embedded. The second is what we called illuminated. And this is really recognizing that um, even in um, that, that, that having lots more data or lots more connectivity in and of itself is, is helpful, and, but on its own is, is sort of a dead end. And so illuminated is, is what we ended up calling the idea of it was from, from heuristic to optimal. And it's about being able to sense patterns, make sense of data, and take lots of different inputs from lots of different devices and, and technologies and understand what are the optimal pieces of information that need to be directed to a person or to a machine for any given context toward any given person. Uh, the third is what we call anticipatory. And anticipatory is in many ways is sort of what a lot of the big um, a lot of what the big tech giants are chasing right now. So um, the Google's new or relatively new CEO Sundar Pichai has a had a great line in his first um, shareholder letter as as CEO of Google saying um, just just a decade ago computing was still synonymous with big computers that sat on our desks. Over time, the computer itself um, will be an intelligent assistant helping you through your day. We'll move from a mobile-first to an AI-first world. And I think what he's really saying, and, and what a lot of, you know, not, not only him, but what a lot of people are interested in, is this idea of anticipation, of knowing you know, that I want a particular piece of news or I want a particular advertisement for a product before I even know that I want it. And if you can anticipate my needs before I'm even aware of them, there's just tremendous potential there for all sorts of purposes. So our third big capacity was the sense of anticipatory communications. The fourth is what we called multisensory. And, and multisensory was um, really an attempt to acknowledge that virtual reality, augmented reality, and, and those kinds of um, platforms are becoming very compelling. But the at the same time, things like haptics, wearables, devices you talk to, that, that, that we shouldn't just expect the world of communications to be sort of screen-based anymore, but that we need to move toward a world where our communication systems and our digital communication systems are embodied in the same way that you know, person-to-person communications are in real life. And then finally, the fifth big capacity is what we call programmable. And for me, the, the sort of quintessential example of programmable um, and what we mean by that is the ability to orchestrate lots and lots of computing resources with, with very little effort. Um, for me, the sort of the I really started thinking about this last capacity when I was traveling uh, for work about a year ago, and I was out out in Sweden looking out, um, you know, to sort of gorgeous view, and trying to Skype home to my two year old daughter. 
And you know, if you've ever tried talking to a two-year-old over an iPad, it's sort of, you know, they, they can't really pay attention for more than a couple minutes. So she was chasing my wife around the house. My wife was just, you know, desperate for a break because here I am traveling internationally. And so I was really just looking at my, my empty living room back in San Francisco. And uh, just mostly out of boredom, I said, Alexa, play Johnny Cash. And then literally within two seconds, I heard Johnny Cash playing back from San Francisco to me in Switzerland over my iPad. And when I stopped to think about it, it was sort of a really kind of an amazing thing to realize is that I had orchestrated, you know, just through this very simple voice command, computing resources that activated, you know, something up in the cloud to play music out in San Francisco. And that music was being played back to me, but the sort of enormous potential of being able to affect change, you know, around the world through, you know, a few spoken words um, it was kind of, for me, really astonishing. But it, it pointed to this sense that um, more and more um, we'll be able to program our communications flows and connect to things uh, across distance in a way that we never have been able to before. And so what you did was develop a number of forecasts based on this research. And I'd like you to talk about some of them. Let's start with machine-orchestrated entertainment. What's that? Machine-orchestrated entertainment was really an acknowledgement um, that you know, sophisticated neural nets are getting really good at, at taking, um, basically t- taking data in from, you know, from previous artwork or music or so on and recreating either sort of facsimiles or similar kinds of art or kind of creating entirely new art on their own. And so um, there are a couple you know, some sort of examples that, that illustrated this. Uh, one was something called the Next Rembrandt, which was a, a project by this sort of interesting partnership of machine learning experts and art historians. And uh, what they did was uh, trained a, a machine learning algorithm to you know, literally sort of analyze stroke by stroke Rembrandt's you know, canon of paintings and then use that to create a very, very convincing uh, new Rembrandt, or what they call the next Rembrandt. Uh, when I show people the two images side by side and I ask them to vote on which one's the real Rembrandt, it usually splits 50-50, 40-60 every once in a while. There's a you know, odd group of, of people who are really you know, strong visual artists and they can you know, have a better sense of which one's the real Rembrandt. But you know, ultimately what, what this system did was created a pretty convincing uh, new, you know, painting that that almost convinces you it's it's the work of a 16th century artist. Um, the other, the the sort of very different end, the other big example that we used, you know, kind of to help us think about this, is a service called Juke Deck out of the UK. And um, what's really amazing about Juke Deck is, you know, I can I have no musical background to speak of, but I can sort of specify. Let's say I want you know 20 seconds of ambient music. Uh, I, you know, I want it kind of soft and, and, you know, sparse, I think, you know, there are three or four variables you can specify, including time length. And, um, within about, you know, you specify these variables, you hit, you know, create, or I, I don't remember what the button is, but you basically hit make song. And within, you know, a few seconds, you have your own customized piece of music that's entirely, it's entirely custom. It's entirely created um, by this service, by this machine learning service. 
And um, as I understand it, at least when, when I was looking closely at this, their interest is in sort of providing background music for kind of semi-professional videos, audio, podcasts, that kind of stuff. Um, but it's sort of a really kind of incredible thing to realize that now an amateur with you know a little bit of money to license one of their songs can get a custom soundtrack the way that any sort of very serious professional outfit or major studio might have might be you know can do now. Um, so to me, what it was a signal of and what it points to a forecast of is that we're moving rapidly toward a world where machines can can really cr- do creative work, and so that you know any communication, you know, any sort of communications or media experience has the potential to be um, aided by by computational tools. And I think that that really what we were trying to convey in this forecast, so the the title was Machine Orchestrated Entertainment Toward Algorithms in Writers and Composers' Rooms, is that these tools have the potential to really supercharge creativity and enable us to be much more productive, much more creative than we ever have before. Interesting. I recently came across a similar kind of application called Picks to Picks. And what it does is it allows you to sketch something out a crude drawing or something of anything, and then the software will fill it in with what it thinks you're trying to draw. And so they have a specific application that does cats. So you can do a cartoony drawing of a cat and will try to make it look like a realistic cat. And you can go crazy with it and draw a really bizarre-looking sketch, and then it will try its best to fill it in. And you can end up with some really cool and interesting art that way without having to be a technically skilled artist yeah or i mean or if you're you know if you're pretty good at drawing the outline of cat all of a sudden you don't need to, you don't need to do all of the work of filling it in but um it's really it's really kind of incredible i, I was playing with that yesterday as well and it's just sort of incredible that you know you do a little quick line drawing the kind of thing that you know any you know any elementary school student can do and all of a sudden you have this sort of you know wonderful collage and i don't know you know 5 seconds and it's created by the combination of a a person and a machine learning algorithm okay let's talk about another forecast tell me about biomedia yeah um that's so this is and this is one of our you know there there's some good questions we always try to ask ourselves when when something appears obvious and so um it's really obvious that biometric data for no other reason but security is becoming increasingly critical to everything you know to kind of all of our devices to how we interact with digital communication systems you know more and more of our phones use fingerprint authentication as just sort of a baseline example and um but of course fitness trackers and all that kind of stuff are are you know sort of likewise increasing in adoption and so it's really it's 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 almost it's it's not quite a given. There are no total given you know, future facts, but it's it's hard to really imagine a future ten years out where biological data isn't part of um, part of how we do things, isn't increasingly part of our communication systems. And so, what we're interested in with um, this idea of biomedia, what we call towards systems that respond to our biomarkers is that right now they're almost exclusively being used either, you know, really in kind of two fields. One is in healthcare and health, and the applications there are obvious. 
And then the second is in security or, or payment. You know, it feels like security payments. It's you know, using your thumbprint to pay for your groceries at Whole Foods on your iPhone, that kind of stuff. Um, but there's lots of um, been lots of really great examples, and, and um, one of my favorites uh, comes from, from Mark from Boing Boing um, that I think you posted of this uh, to Boing Boing of this uh, pair of DJs named Zed's Dead who got really interested in the idea of trying to understand at a very quantitative level how music affects their fans. And so they put heart rate monitors and other biosensors onto their fans and got this real-time reaction of, you know, if we did this with the beat, here's how the, here's how the crowd responded. And all of a sudden what it gets you thinking about and pointing toward is this world where our communication streams, and this I think you can particularly imagine in the context of music, is constantly responding not just to what it appears like you're thinking, but to really your underlying sort of biological states. Um, so in this kind of context, I've seen you know demo projects of things like speak of um, you know, headphones with built-in sensors that can you know, guess your heart rate and try to figure out oh you're exercising so we'll pay we'll play music that'll you know kind of pump you up and help you run faster or harder or, you know we'll change the beat to match your speed and that kind of thing but this sense that you know that that our underlying biometrics will start to help shape what we get back in return is I think a really really interesting space for thinking about how do you tailor and personalize communications um, to, to, to whoever your individual audience might be. One of the interesting things about this is that it allows our bodies to communicate in ways that we normally have not communicated. I mean, our heart rate, perspiration, those kinds of things are now modes of communication or signals that we can transmit to other people or machines as opposed to just our voices or body language or things like that. So there are this, these entirely new modes of communication, and we have just barely scratched the surface. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, for good and, and bad in certain ways, I think, um, you know, there, there's that, that famous work that's been done on, on microfacial expressions about, you know, that, that it, you, might, you might look stoic to somebody who's not trained in, in that world, but to somebody who's trained in microexpressions, they can tell if you're sad or upset or angry, even though, you know, through just very subtle movements that last half a second. Um, and, you know, the, the thing that I think people always worry about is if you get trained in it, you know, you can, you have this superpower that you can sort of interpret people's emotions, but then they have a certain, you know, you feel like your emotions can be interpreted. Um, but what I'm excited about, what I think is so amazing about this is that, you know, and I think the best applications probably of this are coming, um, I, I think, in you know, certainly some of the most kind of exciting sort of social applications of this are um, in health and healthcare. So I know, I know there's ongoing work um, around autism and emotion recognition that um, even though many, you know, if, if many autistic people have, have trouble recognizing their own emotions, even though. Uh, their underlying biometrics give really good signals that they might be about to get really angry or have an outburst or be upset. And so there's lots of work to try to figure out, can you interpret those signals far enough in advance that a caregiver could step in and prevent an outburst from happening? So I think you can sort of imagine the spectrum ranging from, you know, cool, cool new ways to make, you know, make a party a little bit more entertaining, um, all the way to these really sort of, um, 
you know, helping address these really intractable challenges in a space like caregiving. Tell me about the shareable presence forecast. Yeah, so um, I think there's really a, what, what we would feel like is almost a um, a common misunderstanding. There's there's really a common misunderstanding that the virtual reality is kind of like this. It, it's it's just sort of yet another. Um, kind of personal isolating form of entertainment. And so if television was the first big isolating, big thing that isolated us from the world, now you can strap something like a television onto your head and just immerse yourself in the world and, and be totally you know, taken out of, of the reality around you. Um, and I think there are obviously, I mean, there, you know, there are really great just you know, personal entertainment applications of virtual reality. But what I think is in many ways for me more exciting um, is what we're thinking of as shareable presence. And it's, it's the ability to use tools like virtual and mixed reality to transcend boundaries, to connect, um, you know, to connect socially, personally, professionally in ways that we never have been able to before. Um, and in many ways, that, that's kind of the core of our argument in, in that space is that we think, we think probably the, the best way to think about virtual reality is at some level is a fundamentally social technology and, and one that's about being able to share, share yourself and share your presence with others. Um, so, you know, there, there, there's so many really good examples. I think you know, Microsoft has this great demonstration of something they call holoportation where you know, two people with hollow lenses and 360 degree capture cameras can in effect transport, you know, a fully you know, realistic holographic rendering of themselves into another room. Um, but I think what's for me, you know, and there are lots of different demonstrations. Facebook has a ton of really, really cool demos that are worth watching. Um, but I think that the really, for me, the important signal to think about is, is things like, um, the ways that, the ways that being able to do kind of video Skyping and, and, and you know, FaceTime and all that kind of stuff has driven technological adoption in particular among uh, older people, and so there, there's lots of really good data showing that older people tend to adopt, you know, those kinds of tools to do things like they just want to Skype, you know, they want to they want to FaceTime their grandchildren back home, and that's you know that's the only way to really build a relationship with a grandchild is through an iPad, and so they're you know they buy the iPad or they buy the iPhone so they can connect with the grandchild, um, and so I think virtual reality is going to have this same sort of feeling and the same experience of. Um, there'll be a lot of people who today don't imagine themselves as users or adopters of virtual reality, but when they see the application not as a tool for entertainment, but as a tool to build social connections, will really, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of rush toward it because it opens up so many new potentials. The other forecast I wanted you to talk about was the expanded sensorium. Tell me about that. Yeah, and in many ways, it's kind of I guess it's 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 very closely related to shareable presence and it's um it's it's really it's about being able to project yourself kind of anywhere and all over the world um so we have these in our offices we have a couple of these um telepresence robots called 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 the beam or the, the i guess the company is suitable technologies and the, ro- the robot's called a beam and you, you know, you go to a website or, you know, you have a little app and you go to it and you just click a button and all of a sudden 
uh, you're not just in a video chat, but you're physically, you know, you feel like you're in this robot and you can push it around and drive it. And um, you have, I've had meetings with people where, you know, where I look to my left and I feel like the robot is too close and you know, we have like robot personal space issues, which is sort of interesting in and of itself. But um, what, 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 it, what that's an example of, and um, you know, the, I guess the other example that, that I think of um, is a, a couple of, about a year ago, an engineer um, kind of hacked together, Silicon Valley engineer, hacked together a little system to connect his Amazon Echo so that it could open up his garage door and enable his Tesla to drive itself out of the car or out of the garage and just and say, and then he'd get a message saying, your car is ready for you to drive. And he was supposed to you know, get in it. Um, but it's the ability to affect physical change in one way or another uh, anywhere in the world. And, you know, right now we're sort of used to this world where I can, you know, we, we all sort of are used to the world where you can call anyone or email anyone or tweet anyone or what have you, but you can connect to anyone personally. Um, but what I think we're moving toward is, is a world where you can not just connect to anyone and share information, but you can connect to more and more things or potentially anything and affect it out in the world. And that's, that's a, going to be a very big shift that we're just beginning to grapple with. Brad, how do you think that this world of ambient media is going to change us, both as a species and as a civilization? What was really striking about this work is how these are tools and technologies that enable us to better enact or live out our intentions for communications. My in-laws live in Santa Barbara. We're in, in Berkeley, uh, California now. Um, so about 300 miles away. So, you know, we, we see them from time to time, but but not all that often. And when I think about how they communicate with my daughter in terms of, um, you know, using an iPad and FaceTime and that kind of thing, what's really striking is they're doing the same exact thing that my grandparents who lived in New York were doing when they called us on the phone and, and tried to have a phone conversation with us. Um, they have, They were living out the same kind of intention of, building intimacy with a family member. Uh, but at the same time, the technologies really enable uh, my in-laws to do it just much more effectively and in, in, much sort of, in a much more natural way than my grandparents could. But of course, for my grandparents, they were able to do it in much more effective, much more natural way than their parents could and so on. And so I think the biggest sort of finding of this work was that um, what these technologies really enable us to do is better enact and better sort of seek out you know, and, and do things that, that, that fulfill our intentions for communication. So um, if you want to you know, create a fun communications experience, you know, if you think about something like Pokemon Go, which I, I never personally got into but you know, knew lots of people who did, um, is just an early example of, of the ways that, you know, that sort of advances in mobile technology and, and communications technologies embedded around us can enable fun experiences to leap off of the screen and into the city. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's sort of about being able to create fun much more effectively. And so you can kind of go down a list and say, um, you know, all, what for me all these technologies do is enable us to do what we want to do, but much, much more effectively and in a much better way.
Institute for the Future works with a broad range of organizations to help them make better, more informed decisions about the future by providing the foresight to create insights that lead to action. We bring a combination of tools, methodologies, and a deep understanding of emerging trends and discontinuities to our work with companies, foundations, and government agencies. To learn more, visit iftf.org.